0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: So welcome back to our refuge class. And um, it is uh, One of the topics today will be uh, refuge in sangha, in community. And I like to think of... Uh, I think it's very important the idea of community and practice. Uh, and here we are as a kind of a community taking this class and exploring this. And as a way of uh, appreciating that and perhaps supporting that, uh, what would happen if we would go and everyone go around the mic and everyone say their name so that everyone's voice is in the room, everyone's name is in the room. And maybe that's kind of a way of, of uh, kind of gathering together today as we begin. So maybe we can uh, use your your mic first. And uh, you can start. Kristen. Kumi. Joe. Meredith.
2: Barbara. Terry. Trudy. Auntie Madri
1: Bess
0: Beatrice Abraham Julie Ganesh Krista <clears throat>
2: Leslie Carrie Linda. Anne. Yolana. Bruni. Lilu.
3: Samuel. Brian.
0: Beatrice. <clears throat> Trishla.
4: David. Patrick.
3: urban Neil Michael
2: Fiona
1: Jim John Is everyone? Wonderful. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate it a lot. So, um I believe that last week when we were here, I, I said maybe for a second time, maybe, a uh, little bit the principle that's behind this class and this, the refuge ceremony, if you're gonna do it. And that is that I don't see the refuge as something that uh, you have to take on from outside, like a belief or something, but rather it's something that resonates with something that's in you already something you know, something you understand, something that you value, some uh, uh, maybe an intuition of a possibility of freedom or a life that's very different than you have here now. Uh, And that is so important for you that you want to acknowledge it. You want to name it, you want to kind of give it life by uh, stating in a clear way for yourself and to be recognized in doing it um, that this is important for you. Uh, in your life, and it's a part of the guiding principles, guiding direction of your life. That uh, what uh, that you have, you know something about. But the, there's something about the Buddha Dharma and the Sangha, Sangha that mirrors that, or resonates with that, or speaks to that in a very important way for you. So in this way, it's meant to be very personal for you. And uh, and I'm hoping during these weeks that you're actually reflecting on what this means for you and what you'd like it to mean for you and what it could mean for you and what you're gonna infuse the ceremony with or this intention of going for refuge, that it's a conscious act that's intentionally done from some understanding and some reference point that is personal. Um, in the, in the Theravada tradition, there is a teaching that when a person really goes for refuge, they do not uh, depend on any other person. It's an interesting idea. Uh, you're not depending on any other person. There's something about depending on yourself and coming here. And you know, two of the refuges have to do with people. The first is the Buddha, and the second is the community, the Sangha. And so it would seem like we're depending on them. In a certain way, we're taking refuge in them as a support, as a guide, but we're not, but we're not depending on them. Uh, But they're there to support us, to support what we're doing, to fuel us, to encourage us, to guide us in a very important way. So uh, in this uh, Theravadan tradition, there's um, understanding that people will take refuge for different reasons and with different motivations um, and understandings of what they're doing. And um, so there's a list of four and, uh, and they actually, when they discuss this, they discuss uh, the uh, four different ways in which people will consciously take refuge. And there's a statements that the tradition has for each of these four ways of taking refuge. I don't remember exact statements, I can't tell you, but I, I know that what each one is. And I, I'll tell you what they are uh, with the idea that, um, uh, again, there's not a one way or one right way what refuge means. Uh, we're helping you. You're finding your way with it. And so maybe some of these different uh, ways maybe is meaningful for you. And, and if the individual ones aren't mean, any of them are meaningful for you, just the principle that you're learning that it's not a fixed thing, this thing, refuge. It's really something uh, deeply personal for you that resonates with something that in a, in a way is outside of yourself or resonates with something which is In modern psychology, they might call call it transpersonal, something that's larger than your own little, you know, personal universe that you live in. So um, the first way of going for refuge, and they're listed kind of in in a certain kind of ascending order. The first one is that uh, one takes refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha out of respect, out of reverence, out of a certain level of uh, emotional devotion. So one is ready to bow to it, one respects it, one honors it, one's inspired by it. That's the first kind. And for some people, uh, if they encounter Buddhism, they encounter Buddhist practitioners, teachers, the teachings, and there's something about it that just speaks to them so fully, they're inspired by it. They, this is really important, this is valuable. They're ready kind of, to, they take their little book they got in Buddhism and they put it someplace special in their house. They don't just kind of like just shove it to the back of the bookcase. This is, this is important, so they're ready to respect it, to keep it out, keep it available as a resource. So the first way is to have a, a level of devotion and reverence for, for the tradition. The second way of refuge is to become a student of the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. To w- to be willing to learn. And to learn means, I think, uh, means to be willing to ch- be changed by it. So it's not just a m- matter of just learning principles and learning li- Buddhist lists. There's plenty of lists if you like to learn. Uh, it's not learning the teachings per se and learning what the practice is, but it's to engage in the teachings and the practices with the idea that uh, you'll learn, but as a student you're being changed to become a better person in some ways, or a freer person, or a more compassionate person. But you're committing yourself to learn, to be a student. The third way is to use the, the ideals of the Buddha-dharma Sangha, have them as uh, the a guiding light for our life, for one's life. So one knows something, this is where one really begins to know something about what it's like for the heart to be free, what it's like to have the heart not caught up in its attachments and clingings, its fears, its hates, to have somehow have put down a lot of the attachment we have and be able to, in some profound way, breathe easily, to have an easy heart, to have the mind kind of light and open and perhaps in a luminous way, A certain kind of emptiness exists in the mind where the mind is not cluttered with uh, preoccupations and concerns, but is available and clear and creative and and free of the usual clutters that go on there. That uh, we know something about uh, the dynamics of the processes of the heart and the mind that get us into trouble. We recognize clearly the momentums of clinging or craving or compulsion or contraction that goes on, that seems to get us in trouble, seems to create kind of uh, uncomfortable life, maybe a lot more dramatic than a life of great suffering. And we see, we recognize the possibility of what it's like not to cling to that, to have a mind without those things, and to have a clear sense that this this liberation, this freedom of the mind from clutter and attachments and clinging, the mind that uh, uh, that has room for love and empathy and generosity and wisdom, that those ideals are the guiding light. And here, it's, it's not when, it, when it's not when it's still a student of the Dharma, but when is not studying it so much as when it's beginning to live into it. So that's a third way of going for refuge. The fourth fourth way. Is um, is maybe I'll introduce it with uh, something that uh, one of my teachers said many many years ago. He said that many people come to the Buddhism and they practice for some time, and then they come to him and say, "This is great. The practice is great." But you know, we're you know to really make it work, you know, it, it really has to. Uh, we have to learn how to uh, to bring our practice um, uh, into our life. And I guess he, maybe he got tired of people keep keep coming with that, that question or that concern, bringing the practice into the life. And he said, well, that's fine, but there's another option. And that is you bring your life into your practice. And uh, here, for him, it, uh, whatever that life is that people talk about, um, it's very vague that you have into my life. But here, there's a set of values, principles, experiences that, that we can know of freedom that, um, that represent or becomes the most important values, the most important goals, the most important motivations for how we want to live our life. That it seems like, you know, if this life is kind of going to be really good, you know, anything short of that, anything short of really living a life that's dedicated to freedom and compassion, in this profound way, is somehow off, doesn't quite, not really satisfying. And rather than bringing my practice to my life, I'm gonna center my my life in my practice. I'm gonna center my life in this values of not clinging and not suffering. And then I'm gonna, everything has to be integrated into that, everything has to accommodate that. It's not like I have to kind of, you know, do this practice and then accommodate the people who want me to lie or people want me to be greedy and accumulate things or, you know, all these things. I have to kind of find some way to negotiate that. It's more like, here, this is how I want to live my life. So for the fourth level of refuge is much more thoroughgoing. And uh, and in some of the ancient texts, they talk about this as being surrendering oneself to the Buddha Dharma and the Sangha. And I'm a little bit uncomfortable with those kinds of that kind of language because we have plenty of people who surrender to religious cults in a way that's not very healthy. But if we see that uh, the Buddha Dharma Sangha is not something outside of ourselves, and we're not here to you know we're not depending on someone else, another person, teacher, or something like that, but really we're taking we're taking responsibility, or we're taking. a mature kind of connection to something that we choose to do because we understand it. It's an intention that we have. We want to kind of give ourselves to the practice in such a full way that we can say that, um, you know, I'm now going to, you know, everything has to, everything has to come into this practice. Everything has to come into this freedom. Everything has to live there. And so the ordinary, Ways in which you talk about the self, the self has desires you know for ice cream and all kinds of things you know to be silly about it um, i'm going i'm I'm giving that up I'm, I'm surrendering that to the dharma, or we can say uh, surrendering surrendering to the truth i'm going to let the truth be my guide, and we'll see uh, we'll talk about it again but um at some point, in this deeper connection to the Dharma to practice, uh, the Buddha equates the Dharma with the person, that uh, when you take refuge in the Dharma, it's also you're taking refuge in yourself. So it's a little bit you know nuanced, this idea of you know you're surrendering yourself to the Buddha Dharma and the Sangha. Some people, would some teachers have said, what you're doing is you're surrendering yourself to yourself, to who you really are, in a sense. And most of the ways in which we're running around, like you know, chicken without a head, you know, being busy doing a lot of different things, trying to accomplish a lot of things, there's a way in which people, many people, are disconnected from themselves. And so, to really uh, to let go of these, the clingings, the compulsions, the attachments, the fears the resentments that we have, is a homecoming here. And so to really, really surrender to the Buddha Dharma Sangha is to a homecoming to ourselves. And I like to say the heart rests in itself in this way. So I don't know if these four ways make any sense for you, whether some of you, some of you kind of could identify as one of these more than the other. Um, but did that makes sense, for, uh, do you have questions about that that you'd like to ask for clarification or anything that occurs to you about what I've said? Yolana, yeah. Yeah, let's wait for the mic.
2: Um, in the beginning you said that in the Theravadan tradition, this is how it works. What about other traditions? I mean, I only know Theravada, I guess, because I only know you. (laughs) Any other traditions?
1: As far as I know, all Uh Buddhist traditions do refuge ceremony. It's like one of the most common ceremonies, common religious steps that people take. And if you go to Japan, if you go to China, people are chanting the refuges. (laughs) And um, and, uh, when I became ordained as a Zen monk... Uh, you had to sew your own robes. And for every stitch, you had to do it by hand, every stitch you had to uh, recite in your mind, you could do it silently, you had to say to yourself, uh, the Japanese version, Japanese way of saying, um, I take refuge in the Buddha. And... Um, and um, so you know, so yeah, you know, so it's it's very it's a very common. Exactly what it means in these different traditions, there might be nuances of difference how it's understood, um, and um, and uh, and sometimes some of these uh, other Mahayana traditions are a little bit esoteric, where they have some idea. It's kind of like they believe that there's some kind of to say it lightly or say it kind of vaguely. There's a kind of uh, energy that's been transmitted. From some kind of cosmic beginning, that travels through a lineage of teachers, and they're transmitted. And when when you take refuge in a formal way, and receive the precepts, you're kind of receiving that energy. You kind of receive, like you're given the refuges and you're given the precepts. And it has so it has a little bit of a mystical, a little bit metaphysical kind of idea of what it is. And um, so so I, I've, I've seen that a little bit in some of the Mahayana traditions, but I can't really speak for all the other ones. The hallmark or one of the characteristics of this Theravadan tradition is that compared to a lot of the others in uh, Buddhist traditions, it, it's the, probably the one that is most human-centered, or, or like I, what I prefer to call it most naturalistic. And the Buddha is understood as being a human being, whereas in other Buddhist traditions, sometimes the Buddha is really some kind of trans- Human or beyond human or it's a little bit hard exactly to characterize but it's you know it's not it's not humans you know and so I, I really like this the naturalistic naturalism of this tradition and and um, so so there's so sometimes it gets a little bit more but I you know but you have to you have to ask people who represent these other traditions to really find out I'm sure it's but it's always it's always, a, it's always a, a heartfelt thing it's always something that's very deep in people's Life, devotional life, or something. Thank you. Sorry, Anne, you had something?
2: Um, sometimes, uh, you know, when I'm going to start doing something or I have to make a decision, I think, well, what does a disciple of the Buddha do? Or how does, it, how does someone who's doing Buddhism do this? Uh-huh. You know? Is that like one
4: of the um, four things you talked about?
1: I think it could. uh, It wouldn't fit in the first one, which is mostly just a devotional attitude, where you're not necessarily going to change what you do, except have reverence for it. If you're a student of Buddhism, then you're interested in what people do. You're interested in what Buddhism teaches, Mm -hmm. and you might look and study what other people ask them. You know, how do you do this? You know, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, how do you deal with email? and uh, and maybe they'll have some very interesting things to say about email that wow that really makes sense to me and that oh thank you that that approach to email i see how i can stay connected to myself um, thank you but i ask it to myself yeah. not to other people so and do you get answers sometimes yeah fantastic <laughs> so that's fantastic so so maybe that's more like the third uh, form oh. of refuge where you're using those ideals as a guide yeah, and course. so you're connected you're connecting to the refuge you're connecting to the ideal or the idea of what they represent uh-huh. and somehow your psyche your mind being reminded of what that represents maybe you have access or a reference point that helps you find your own way Yeah it's one of like that That's beautiful
4: Um My mind's a bit muddled, and I'm hoping somebody else feels the same way. Can you just briefly or succinctly describe the four uh, approaches again? I mean, I'm pretty good with the first one, but the second, third, and fourth kind of ran together.
1: So uh, maybe in one words, uh, devotion, studying, being guided, and surrendering. Um, So these four kinds, are they developed for different personality types? Because there is um, the parable of the rain cloud. This is a very um, famous parable where um, the Buddha says, as it is your nature, depending on that, you can choose your path.
3: So if you're
1: an engineer, you can go down that path and you'll find Buddhahood. Eventually, it will all converge. Just like... Um, this is Lotus Sutra, right? Um, the, the parable of the flowers or the rain cloud. It's called by different names. Um, I I was just mesmerized by that. So I found a lot of relief from that. Uh-huh. So are these four personality types, Is it for are, are these four paths for different personality types? Because so, Buddha seems to stress that uh, again and again. I think... Uh I don't, th- I think that certainly different personalities, I think, would be oriented towards these in different ways, for sure. Um, uh, some people who have a very strong emotional and, and devotional personality might really take to the first one, that's a characterizes them, you know, what And I, it's also possible, I suppose, that someone has all four qualities. They relate to the Dharma all four ways, but at different times or because of their different personalities, they might emphasize one. I know people who are solid, strong, committed practitioners who have really given themselves fully over to the Dharma. And some of them, you see, some of them study more books and stuff. And that seems good. They're more an intellectual approach. Some of them uh, are really devotionally focused. And that's where they combine their juice and their inspiration. So there are differences in people. But I think that... Um, the uh, the list, the way it's presented in these ancient texts is more like ascending order in, in the sense that if it's merely devotion, you're not going to get very far in towards liberation. I think that's the idea. If you're studying, you get a little bit far, further. If you're using it as, as these principles, ideals, as a real guide for how you live your life and change your life, you'll go further. But if you really uh, surrender the self, surrender the attachment to self and really become the dharma, you go the furthest. I think that's the way that the Theravada tradition understands this particular list. So, having said that, um, i like for you to sit for a few minutes, so in silence, maybe for five minutes or so, and uh, partly to let this somehow be digested in you, and I don't, you know, I don't know what, what way it might. But could you repeat the four one more time? The, the, uh, the, I'm, I'm uh, memory impaired. Uh huh. I'm so, so again. So, uh, devotion. Devotion to the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Okay. A student of the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Okay. Uh, using the Buddha Dharma Sangha as your north star as your as your guide,
3: Good. and then
1: surrendering to the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Thank you. Great. Okay, so we'll sit a few minutes. As this sitting continues, as we continue sitting here, I'm gonna evoke or name a few qualities of mind or heart. And as I evoke them, you might see if there's any reference point that you have for these maybe in your memory of a time in your life when you felt these things, or maybe some of it's present for you now. And these qualities are related to the Buddha's awakening. That's a little bit the central reference point for the whole enterprise of Buddhism is the Buddha's awakening. It seems that in some of the earliest descriptions of this awakening, or how the Buddha was transformed, the most common description of it, or word that described it was the concept of peace. Peace. What experience, what reference point do you have for a heart which is at peace, or a mind or a body which is at peace? Was there, what time in your life, what situation in life did you feel the most inner peace? Or the most peace? And is there some way that if you do have some reference point of peace, can you imagine how that could be a guide or a teacher for you to help you look at your life, look at what you do, look at how you lose your peace, and maybe provide some form of a guiding Principle or value. Then a second concept that's used to describe the Buddha's awakening. is the idea of release, to be released from what weighs us down, released from what keeps us contracted, caught, released from what keeps us back, released maybe from the many ways of relating to oneself that are unkind, released from the burdens that come with selfing. Do you have any reference point in your life any time where you felt some degree of being released, even temporarily, from burdens, things that weighed you down or restricted you, And is there some way that whatever degree of release that you've experienced, that you know of, that it can be a teacher for you, a guide, a reference point for how to find your way, and what's important. And then another concept or quality that was used to describe the Buddha's awakening was the concept of freedom. Once you're released, there's freedom, freedom to move, freedom to be, the joy of not being restricted but being able to be in this world in a certain way, in an unrestricted way. From a Buddhist point of view, this sense of freedom is very internal, complete sense of inner freedom to be as you are. And do you have a memory or a reference point Or what freedom might be the freedom of a Buddha? And what value does this freedom have for you It's very easy to lose touch with it because other things can seem more important. But might there be a way that the freedom itself is maybe more important than most other things, especially when you realize you don't have to sacrifice the sense of freedom to take care of other things And then another concept that is associated with the Buddha's awakening is that of compassion. And do you have a memory of a time or a reference point for compassion living inside of you or a time that you were the recipient of someone's compassion? And might there have been some embodied feeling or sense of compassion being present? And to, is there some way in which compassion is? can be a teacher or a guide, guiding principle, a refuge or a support. The final quality that's associated with the Buddha's awakening that I'll mention here is happiness, to be happy. Do you have any reference point or memory when you were happy in some Deep, deep way. Sense of deep happiness, well-being. That maybe almost felt very settled, not excited and no no, no excitement in the happiness, but kind of warm, peaceful, tranquil happiness. Just happy in a simple way, but a profound way. And is there some way that happiness can be a teacher or a guide that this Tranquil happiness can be a refuge, a support. And then to end this sitting, You can take a few long, slow, deep breaths. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes. the other, the idea of a w- awakening and all the different facets of what that might mean is somehow um, embedded in each of the three refuges. Most commonly it's said that when you, the refuge in the Buddha is really the refuge in the Buddha's awakening, that that's what we're really relying on or trusting or or finding our support with, or that we somehow orient towards, or represents our motivation, our dedication. Refuge in the Dharma uh, is sometimes said to be the teachings of of the Buddha, but more importantly are the practices and some of the experiences that come on this path of liberation, the path of awakening. So it's something experiential that we engage in, that we do. Very few couch potatoes watching TV have become enlightened, or have tasted or touched some of the real fruits of what this Dharma has to be. It requires doing something. It requires something of us: action, engagement. We have to, in some ways, give ourselves to what this practice is to bring us, bring it into our lives be our lives for the fruit to happen. This is not wishful thinking. And so the take refuge in the Dharma is to, to take as a support, as a guide, as a inspiration, as a motivation, the practices and the experience that begin to mature and grow through these practices. The practices of awakening. And then the sangha is an ancient Buddhist word for say it's a it means something like a group or a community or an assembly, a group of people. We usually say community in English. And um, it's uh, and the sangha the 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 central or the uh, the central meaning of sangha when we go for refuge is this community of people who have to some degree or other, in some reliable way, tasted or touched uh, aspects of awakening. They kind of know, kind of, they t- touched it or tasted or seen it well enough that they know what this practice is all about. They really have a really clear reference point. This is what it is. And they have a reference point of the, of the certain level of ethical purity, certain reference point of, of not clinging to things, not holding on to things, which doesn't mean that they're completely ethical pure, but they, have t- they know something, they touch something. Um, it's kind of like um, if someone, if um, someone, um, I mean, one example that's given, I don't know if it's the best one, is um, if someone uh, is walking through the desert thirsty for water, and they, you know, have been going for a long time and really it's important for them to drink, and finally they come to a river and they see, you know, just down the hill, not so far away, is the river. And they know now that water is there. They have no doubts about it, and that's. But they not haven't drunk the water yet, and they haven't gone bathing in it yet. So for some people, this uh, the the there's no there's, people who, uh, the, Sangha are the people the The people have no doubt. For the minimum, they see the river. They know what it's about. They have enough experience, enough contact with peace some quality of peace, some quality of release, some aspect of freedom, some aspect of um, compassion, some aspect of happiness, that is qualitatively different, or is transformative, or points to a different way of living that's not based on greed, hate, and delusion, which I think a fair number of human beings base their life on. And so some people see the river, some people able to put their toe in the river. Some people stand in the river, and some people float in the river. So there's you know different degrees in the connection to it. But so the central aspect of the sangha is that there are these mature people, these mature practitioners, who have somehow have 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 that experience, and they have no more doubt, and they know what it's about. Then. More broadly, it's often said the Sangha is just a community of people we practice with and, um, and uh, which is wonderful. The, um, and then in some some Buddhist communities, they spread it out and say, "The whole world is our community. You know, trees are our community, and rocks are our community, and people everywhere are our family." And that's a very profound thing to say. Uh, and it's meaningful, it's, a, it's a very relevant in, in a certain way. But the, when the idea of going for refuge, uh, what, they, what the tradition says is that it's certainly very supportive and helpful to have a community of fellow practitioners. It can be inspiring to practice with people. It's very hard to practice alone. We learn from fellow practitioners. We're helpfully challenged by them in all the different ways, you know, even being irritated is good because then we get to look at ourselves. Um, we get feedback. Uh, we can be inspired by fellow practitioners. All kinds of things can happen. But, um, but uh, until someone has really ha- no longer has doubt, really knows or sees the river, really sees something about this, they don't quite know what the practice is about. They're not really sure. And they can go astray. They can lose it. So the tradition says if you really want to take refuge in the community you want to take refuge in those people who have some taste of awakening some taste of freedom some taste something that they no longer have any doubt because they're not going to go too far astray so if you want to rely on somebody those are the good people to do or or those are the people who represent what you're trying to do those are the people who can mirror that or inspire that in people And so um so some people, so the idea of community is very important, and people take, you know, you know go to communities of all kinds. Some of you come here time C for the support that it comes from practicing here and being in community. And, um, and, um, but to, in terms of going for refuge in, in Sangha, um, it's, um, it's knowing that there are people either in principle you know or you've actually met people who you really feel that they have some kind of quality of maturity, of freedom, of, of peace, of some kind of different kind of happiness than they won the California lottery, something that's more deep embodied, that, uh, that resonates, that that's what it's about, that's meaningful for me, that's possible. And we don't depend on them, because the idea in this theravada tradition is not to depend on other people, not depend, you know, but we can be supported by them. Depend means you're kind of clinging to it and holding on. Uh, but rather, um, they inspire us. They remind us. They say, if, you know, like, oh, if that person can do it, then maybe I can do it. This is a human possibility in the Zen tradition I practiced with, and there was this te- teaching I heard periodically that all the great Zen teachers down through the ages, they, they were just like you at one point. <laughs> and um, so I was I was very inspired by that, too, yeah, you know, as I was a bumbling young student, you know. Really? <laughs> There's hope? <laughs> yeah, and... Um, so community is has a, a, has very, very important for this. Um, and I think it's been many times undervalued. And even people who practice in, uh, you know, in caves all alone, the community is not very far away in their mind. Maybe not in, you know, physically far away, but chances are that um, they're not practicing without some reference point to a teacher they had, to people introduced them to the practice, to knowing there's other people practicing. All kinds of things. And I could say very confidently that uh, I would not have practiced as much as I did if I didn't practice in, in community with other people. That uh, I felt encouraged by them, I felt supported by them, felt inspired by them. Um, there were people that I met that uh, said, wow, that's inspiring. This, this, you know, see their qualities of who they were, the, the sense of freedom I found in them, or some of them who felt so comfortable in themselves you said that's they're just themselves and they any complicated ways so wow that's possible my f- uh, first Zen teacher um, maybe I told you story, uh, that, um, uh, I, and the story that what inspired me the most about him was how ordinary he was but there was something extraordinary about his ordinariness because there's very few people who are ordinary really <laughs> there were people who, you know he wasn't you know you know, ordinarily neurotic. He was just, <laughs> 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 you know, he was just—he was just there in a simple way. It wasn't He it wasn't any pretense. There wasn't any. wasn't much conceit or any conceit. He was just there, trying not trying to do anything or be anything. But, and if he went through the checkout counter at Safeway, you probably wouldn't thought much about him. It wasn't like he was this you know, radiant, shining thing. You know that everyone's like, "Wow, we've got to, we better get suntan lotion."
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: the um, it was, uh, but for me, getting to know him, that uh, that's ordinariness and simplicity and peace and all. That, so, so there was so much that he didn't have that people around me that I knew had all this neurosis and attachments and desires and needs, and and he was just there, and that was very inspiring for me. And that kind of really fueled my own practice. Uh, and uh, you know, without that example, I probably wouldn't have practiced as much as I did. And other people as well. So one of the refuges is refuge in Sangha. And what does Sangha mean for you? Or what is it that community represents for you? Is there something about the Buddhist community or there are certain people whose who spirituality or spiritual freedom or their spiritual compassion or love that uh, you kind you of understand, this, this can be a refuge for me or this can be an inspiration for me or this can be a guide for me, this can be a mirror for me, that it's helpful for you to know this, that they're kind of part of your circle. Do you have any anything like this, anything that you know about this? Um, and maybe it, all it is is that if you come to IMC and you know once a week for a sitting, you say you know it's really important. I, sitting's been really important for me to sit once a week. I can't do it at home, and so it's been very important to come into a room of people who are sitting. I can't believe that they sit for forty-five minutes. I could never do it on my own, but I can do it here. And I'm so grateful. And this you know to have a community of people who are mature enough they could sit still for forty-five minutes. Wow. You know, it could be that. There could be all kinds of things. So what I'd like you to do is to have a conversation with each other on this and talk about this. And what I suggest is uh, groups of three. And, um, and uh, a- as I like to say, it's kind of make more or less just one point about this. And then have you go around the circle and everyone make a point to come back and spiral a circle around and around and talk that way rather than say everything you possibly can say on the subject and have a, you know, a long monologue. And the reason for this is that uh, as you hear other people, it's gonna influence how you think about this, and new ideas, new ways of understanding might bubble up that you're surprised to, to learn. You're not telling them what you already know. And um, so the topic is, uh, what does refuge in community, in Sangha, mean for you? Or what reference point do you have about community or other people besides the Buddha? that uh, somehow you see can see as a support for you in, in this endeavor that we're doing in Buddhism or connected to Buddhist practice. So, it sounded like it was a nice conversation. <laughs> so much so that I was a little bit reluctant to ring the bell, but we are, you know, the, we're supposed to end at nine, so I thought we should. Um, uh, it'd be nice maybe to have two or three comments about uh, what that was like, or did you learn something new, or have some new understanding, or new insights, or perspectives from being part of that conversation? It would be nice to hear something from some of you. Let's open to Lilu there.
0: I felt we had a very heartfelt sharing with our group and two pieces that came up that I was really touched by was how we talked about how our families of origin or our communities of origin kind of inform our relationship to community and um, we all had came from various different communities religious and spiritual communities and that that was meaningful for us and that we still carry that with us in, um, I think, in healthy ways now um, into our new communities or our current communities. And then the other piece was um, we shared about, um, at the end of our discussion, a little bit about the spontaneous arising of community or finding community in places you might not have thought you would find it. And... um, I was just talking about um, my time at visiting St. Quentin State Prison and how I didn't think I would find community um, there necessarily, but I was surprised. With the inmates there. Yes, with the inmates and um, in some of the programs they're doing there and their own work. Um, so...
1: And these were people you thought maybe you shouldn't go into St. Quentin, right? <laughs> you, 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 almost, you almost didn't go. <laughs> I didn't mean to embarrass you, but, but it was just a, just a contrast. I couldn't help but the contrast of going in a place where it just was not where you felt it was safe. You, you had doubts of going, right? And, uh, but then you went, and you were, you were, I think you were surprised what you discovered, right? The community in a place. And the people she had spent time with were people who were doing this practice of ours. And who are, you know, transformed by it in remarkable ways. So it wasn't just he was, you know, hung out in death row or something.
4: (laughs) To continue on that, um, your sentences, not sentences, your words, and when you came to compassion... And I found my mind going um, very much to... I also had that opportunity years ago to go to San Quentin and and be with uh, those people that I respect and admire so much. And whenever uh, things are really difficult, for whatever reason, uh, maybe some neuroses, who knows, um, that's what really strikes me is... um, the sense of community and the compassion that I feel for them, and who would have ever thought that those people would be my heroes?
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Great. The stuff that they're working on.
1: Great. Wonderful. Beautiful.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're right here in the front. Oh, yeah. That's heavier. I have, have you been trying to speak? No. Oh. Okay. Uh, you're, you're, you're li-
0: you're
2: yeah, without the uh, IMC community, I w- that was so welcoming when I first got here. I wouldn't be where I am right now. This is the community that I find that, that is very down to earth. Doesn't matter who you are. We don't list our accomplishments. You know, it's... It's so different. It's nice. You know, it's, it's not like the typical Silicon Valley community. <laughs> it's very refreshing.
1: Great. Abraham, if you can pass that yours back to... No, you can speak. No, no, you can speak. And, no, it's your turn. It's your turn. I just wanted to go a little faster. That's all. Um, so, I think from our group, what I... Gathered was how inspirational you've been in this community. Um, you know, to both my colleagues, and they have been inspired by you and coming regularly and listening to you. Uh-huh. Um, I'm just beginning, and I feel that's that's important. There's so there's something, a co- to so, something here, the community here, yes, and the people the who are inspired, and yeah, along the, the same line. I so speak. their energy here it, it speaks to you and is meaningful yes. for you. Nice great yeah neil
3: so um a few years ago i left my job and i moved to green gulch farm the zen center and then left there and i moved in with my parents in southern california i didn't know anybody around there and i couldn't find um really much of a sangha within like an hour's drive or anything and i was really struggling and it just makes me think right now how important it is to have something to, there's just so much. There's the people like uh, sitting on retreat, especially how supported I feel by everybody else who's participating um, and and the compassion that I, and the, and the and the love I feel for people by the end of that retreat um, or, or something like that. And also just the structure that, that this kind of community gives me by having a, a sit every Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or every day, really, <laughs> um, and and uh, a reminder of you know constant reminders and constantly being brought into back into uh, bringing the, the teaching back into focus that this is really you know, the teaching or the practice or something back into great back in front of me here.
1: Great, thank you. Great, thank you for your comments. I appreciate them a lot. So, um, so refuge in sangha, in community, <clears throat> and um, so we do have. I do have this uh, handout here, which I'll pass out in a few minutes, uh, on community, on sangha, some thoughts of, that I have on it, and maybe this will give you a little more to think about. And and uh, part of the function of these handouts that I give you at the end of this classes is, is just so during the week you have more to listen to or more, more, more to reflect on. Because I'm hoping that you are reflecting on this way as you go along. And, and perhaps there's even friends you can go for a walk with that maybe you can say, you know, I'm taking this funny class. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's a, strange ideas. and But, you know, can I... Can, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about these ideas. Or he's asking us to... The teacher's asking us to do this personal reflection. What does this mean for me personally? And, Maybe your friend can help you with that exploration, and so, so the idea. Is, so it li- something lives in you, because I re- really want this to be, s- you know, something that's living in you and alive in you, and and uh, you know that has you know strength, strength or a spark in you. That's what we want to see. Um, I don't want to make Buddhists. We're interested in Buddhas. So, um, so the, anyway, so. The refuge and community, and then uh, next week we're going to spend time um, talking about um, the precepts or the virtues or the ethics of Buddhism. It's um, they're considered inseparable from the idea of refuge. And why is it that precept or virtue or ethics is considered inseparable? How is it that um, that virtue and ethics is not a burden? Again, it's not something we have to take on as a some kind of moral commandments or moral obligations, but rather this idea of precepts in Buddhism is something that uh, flows out of a kind of a, a, a deep spring, or uh, from within us. We can we can wait. Take your time. You don't you don't have to rush. Great. So. Um, um, the The idea of ethics is and then it 's not supposed to be something you have to import into yourself, but it 's almost like a, a seed that 's in there that sprouts and grows and becomes this huge beautiful plant that flowers inside of you and so well, how does that work and so how is it that you know the precepts are an intimate part of this whole refuge thing and and um, because in the refuge ceremony those are the two two major components of it is. Um, uh, st- the statement of going for refuge and, um, and then a statement of a certain level of commitment to some level of intentionality around the training connected to the precepts. So we'll talk about that next week and what it means. And, and, um, and uh, it's always been uh, very touching for me when maybe, you know, every, every couple of times I do this kind of thing, there's someone that comes up to me and says, Gil, you know, I don't know if I should do this ceremony because the precepts, I'm all behind them except that <laughs> this one. <laughs> I can't, you know, I have, you, know, you know, so maybe I shouldn't do the ceremony. And, and that's a lot of integrity and honesty to come and say that. Well, you know, maybe I shouldn't do it. I have, I have, you know, this one and this is a problem. So then we have a great conversation and we find our way together with that. So, um, so hopefully that'll be a rich conversation. So, um, so, then, so I have this article, second uh, handout on the precepts. It's called "Practicing with the Five Precepts." So, um, these are the two things to read for next uh, next time, this next week. And then I have here a sheet of paper, lined paper, and uh, either today, kind of ideal if you do it today, or next week. Um, if you wrote your names, printed your names print your names,
3: <laughs>
1: block letters as clearly as you possibly can. Because I'll use that to be the name we'll put, we're gonna, you're going to get a refuge document, like a certificate or something. And, um, and so, you know, it's nice to have your name spelled accurately there. And um, so, whatever well, you want the name to be on there. You know, if, you know, if it's Joe is... You know what you most identify with or most meaningful. Great if, it's, if it's Joseph, I don't know. You know you can do that. Whatever you whatever's, whatever's meaningful for you. And um, and the, so I'll pa- start passing this around. I'll say a few more words, and you can fill it out. And if you're unsure, you can wait till next week, or you can unsure you can still put your name on there. And and. Um, and tell me you're not coming later, or just don't come. <laughs> some people, some some years, people have come to this, have told me I'm not ready. I, I'm not quite ready for this, uh, but can I come to the ceremony? And so they come and they sit in the audience, and then the next time I do it, they do the class again, and then they, then they're ready for the ceremony. And I'm also quite touched by this that this is their that their discernment is that they, you know, feel like they're, you know. They want to wait until they're really ready, or something. Someone asked last week if uh, we could, you could have uh, guests, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, great to have guests. If you'd like to have them here to support you, or to witness you, or to make it, you can do that. And um, and what we'll try to do is um, uh, we'll talk a little more about what we'll do that evening. But um, uh, it might be nice to come a little bit early, and maybe we'll have a little bit of sparkling water or something. And then we'll have a little reception or something uh, afterwards. We should have a party, right? You know, we'll find out what kind of parties Buddhists have. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, this is how they party. (laughs) (laughs) What have I done? (laughs) Taking refuge with this? (laughs) I don't know what we'll do. Something will happen, but uh, but we'll talk more about it next week. Finally. through a scheduling complication, it's called that way, Andrea Fella has her her week-long pra- uh, practice groups that meets here next week. And uh, so that sh- so she was planning to be here next Wednesday. So next Wednesday, we're going to share the building. And most likely, what will happen is we'll be in the meditation hall, and she'll be in the community hall with her group, and we'll close the the sliding door. And so for coming in here... You'll come in through that door right there from the from the porch, so that'll be open and there'll be a sign that explains that and so you wouldn't go in there because that's her people her group they come in here, and then I'll say this again, but if you need to use the bathroom while you're here um if you come just before seven thirty you can you know you don't have to worry too much, but you can go come in through the uh through the back door of the kitchen just so you're not going through her sp- this, that space. There's also um, a, a bathroom upstairs at the top of the spiral staircase you can get through it through that door and up through the library. You just have to hold on to the railing well as you go up because so you don't slip on the steps. Yes. I think it's easier to use the bathroom there going through this door and go to the kitchen. Yeah, Andrea would prefer you you use the Andrea would prefer you use a spiral staircase because then there's less noise and activity. Where she's having her thing, but if any reason at all you don't want to go upstairs or can't go upstairs, um, then of course then she's ready for people to use do that. What you're what you're saying. So it's up to you. I didn't hear what she said. Oh, uh, if you're comfortable going up the spiral staircase. What she said? Oh, she said it's easier to use the bathroom back there, oh. and that's all. That's all you needed to know. Okay. <laughs> Yes. Um, I
0: somehow got this idea that both groups were going to become one Wednesday night
1: and I then I didn't have to figure out. Oh, because you're in the other group too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's unlikely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so Andrea told me that today. There might be some people who have to mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so so you so uh, you have to decide what where it's most where you want to be. And this is, you know, uh, but uh, we are recording it. So one possibility is you go to Andrea's group and then you can listen to this later. But, uh, or, I don't know if she's recording hers or vice versa, or... So, any any last comments, questions, concerns that you want to raise? Yeah, Gulana. I will. Uh... Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: uh, you. Go you, go you go first. Yeah. I would. Want very much to attend the ceremony. Unfortunately, I have to go out of the country on the 29th of May. Oh, this so is on the, this? No,
1: no, it's on the 23rd, isn't it? The, it's on the 23rd. Oh. Uh, yeah, in two weeks. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, there, there was some place in the calendar that said it was going to be on the 30th, yeah. yes. but it's not on the 30th, it's on the 23rd. Oh, oh. so in two okay. weeks.
2: Perfect.
4: I just really wanted to say what we talked about in a group, and, and it just struck me so much in terms of Sangha. Where else do we get to talk and explore the things that we do, that we explore with Sangha? Which other people? Not too many.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, Many people comment about this, that uh, you were talking about very important uh, things in people's lives. and. Uh, aspects of human life that it's difficult to have a concentrated conversation with people, you know, on BART or something or, <laughs> 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 or, or on work. And you know, even some friends, you know, not familiar with us, to really have some sometimes to have, you know, focused conversation. Uh, so for people who don't have that in their lives, this is quite valuable and precious. So thank you all very much and I uh, hope to see you next week.
4: Mm. Thank you, thank you.